everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 276. And tonight, wolves actually attack. So we're going to get our first combat here. Um, really, I mean, unless you count the Dell under Weathertop, which was pretty combat light. Uh, it's uh, really, I think, the first combat we've had in the entire Lord of the Rings so far, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. If you don't count Old Man Willow, I suppose. It wasn't exactly combat, was it? Um, yeah. Again, yeah, the Weathertop combat was mostly spiritual. I mean, apart from Frodo getting stabbed, there was almost nothing, really, that... Oh, Sam throwing the apple at Bill Fernie, Miss Ray. You're completely right. Um, <laughs> it was a brief combat, though. <laughs> and only from missile range. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Barrow White's not exactly... Oh, Frodo did hack the hand off of um, uh, off of a Barrow White, but really it's been, um, you know, um, individual acts of violence, I suppose, right? Like Frodo hacking off the hand of the Barrow White and um, Sam hucking an apple at Bill Fernie's face and um, the Witch King stabbing Frodo with a knife. But, um, uh, but not really like melee combat yet at any point uh this is uh, this is really the beginning of it so um anyway quick announcements first we had a lovely time at cascade moot this past weekend i very much enjoyed uh my first trip to portland my first trip up to the pacific northwest um it even got nice and like rainy and drizzly for the second half of Saturday and all day Sunday so that I felt, you know, I was getting the full experience. Um, unfortunately, because of this, it meant that neither day that I was there and um, there during daylight hours uh, was the mountain out. So I didn't get to see Mount Hood, um, but um, uh, but it was it was it was it was it was great. Really enjoyed. Got to walk around the city of Portland a little bit. Um, Got to, um, uh, you know, of course, spend a, a wonderful day in the company of uh, of the Mooters there. Uh, wonderful turnout for our first ever moot up there. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was excellent. Um, you know, Jackie, I actually don't think I drank any coffee the whole time I was in Portland. Actually, yeah, I think I, I think I somehow didn't have. So what, what we did though. Um, which was uh, very delightful. We went to this really nice uh, uh, food cart pod for lunch on the day of the moot. It was a very, told us a very Portland kind of experience. Uh, it was the, uh, the, the one called Hawthorne Asylum. It was awesome. Uh, really, really love places like that. So um, anyway, yeah, really, um, really fun. Um, anyway. So, had a delightful time at Cascade Moot. Really looking forward to our next regional moot now, which is in Iowa, back to uh, Waterloo, Iowa from Middle Moot. Um, this will be our fourth Middle Moot in Iowa, um, which would make it, I believe, the seventh Middle Moot overall. Um, so, uh, that was, um, uh, that's gonna be, that's gonna be good fun, so. Looking forward to seeing some of y'all from the Midwest again um, uh, out at uh, out at Middle Moot, and that will be in a couple weeks um, on the uh, what is it, fourteenth? Yeah, I think it is the fourteenth, fourteenth of October. Um, so um, very um, 
very much, very much looking forward to that. Um, all right. Well, let's jump straight into things here. Today. Well, okay, well, I'll mention the other moves that are coming up too. So in addition to Middle Moot that's coming up next on the 14th, we also have New England Moot here in New Hampshire on the 21st of October. Um, that's a really packed one. Uh, it's always fun. We're going to be back at Studio Lab again. The uh, We're going to be meeting in the, the room where we filmed Rings and Realms um, in front of the big old video wall. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. Um, we're then going to... Um, uh, then we'll have Mountain Moot again, our second Mountain Moot out in Denver. Uh, that will be uh, the first weekend of November. And then we're going to be out to uh, Bayou Moot down in New Orleans uh, for our first ever Moot in New Orleans, Bayou Moot on the 2nd of December. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's going to be uh, a great fall season. Ozmoot in Australia in January, Sunshine Moot. Uh, in uh, uh, in February, and then we're looking at we're looking at a, a mid Atlantic moot. Um, I don't think the name of that one is finalized. It might be Potomac moot or something like that. Um, and then uh, uh, exploring some other options too. Some momentum is building for another European moot, which we haven't done since 2018. It's been no 2019. Nader moot was 2019 was the last time that we did a European moot. Um, but uh, yes, Dizzy, so looking forward to get back, getting back down to Australia again. Um, that'll be, uh, uh, that'll be, that'll be super. So yeah, Mid-Atlantic moot. Um, we're going to be in Virginia. I think we're looking at a place in Reston, Virginia, is where the location is likely to be uh, there. So um, yeah, yeah, praise, exactly. We're also looking at SoCal moot, hopefully, um, doing SoCal moot again in March. So we might do both uh, Potomac moot and SoCal moot uh, in March and then um, moving through. So, yeah, no, we don't we don't have uh, Northern California yet, uh, Maven, but we're 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 working on things. Um, San Diego is lovely in March. Well, I, Jackie, as far as I can tell. San Diego's always lovely, right? But uh, in March, I'm sure that will be especially true. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. It's not lovely in May or June? Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So um, I am uh, uh, delightfully just... I so enjoy the opportunity to go around and, and, and see folks and... Um, you know, have our wonderful moot days together. So uh, many thanks for the people who uh, uh, who come out for those even more uh, for the people who help to organize them. So. Um, all right. Anyway, um, let's um, let's get back into the text here. So we last left off the warg captain coming at the gap in the boulder stones um, and now we get Gandalf's defiance. Gandalf stood up and strode forward, holding his staff aloft. Listen, hound of Sauron, he cried. Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. At that moment there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosed his bow. There was a hideous yell, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced its throat. The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward, but the hill was deserted. The hunting packs had fled. 
All about them the darkness grew silent, and no cry came on the sighing wind. Okay, so... Um, Gandalf stands up, strides forward, and holds his staff aloft. Um, that gesture is an interesting one to me. One of the questions that we've had before, and I've said, well, let's wait to talk about that, is our questions about the staff, about Gandalf's staff. How do wizard staffs work? Um, this is um, actually a really hard to answer question, I find, um, when reading The Lord of the Rings carefully. I think that in holding his staff aloft, Gandalf is uh, that seems to me to be a sign that Gandalf is exerting power in some way. Everett, I agree that it's notable that Gandalf leads with his staff and not his sword. He is not brandishing a weapon here uh, as he is um, striding forward to um, meet the challenge of the war captain that stepped out. Um, and by the way, it's in cues like this. Um, if this seems um, sort of indirect, right? If it seems difficult to conclude or, or if it seems, you know, sketchy or, or, or uh, uncertain to conclude that Gandalf is using magic, as the hobbits might say, uh, when he's acting like this. All I can say is we, we almost never get much more than this. And I don't think we are to understand that no... Of course, you know, the question of magic, what is magic and how magic works in Middle-earth is, is a very complicated and interesting one. Um, and I don't... I'm not wanting to get distracted right now into trying to do things like define the word magic as it's used in Middle-earth. Um, and I don't want to get too distracted by talking about, you know, magia and goita, uh, you know, the two different terms for magic, which tend to, you know, map in different directions. I'm not uh, interested in any of those things in particular, because it's not obvious to me that Tolkien's using, applying those concepts consistently either. What I want to, um, uh, what I want to focus on is, just is Gandalf exerting his will? Um, my definition of magic, when I'm asking the question, like, is Gandalf using magic here? All I mean is, is there? Are we to understand that Gandalf is exerting his will, his power, in ways which are? designed to impact the world around him in some way and, you know, other than physical causation, essentially. Um, and I'm not really 100% sure. It is possible. Um, uh, let's see. Someone was just saying something sort of relevant here. Where was it? Some was talking about... Um, yeah, Scott was saying that it's a token of authority. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, yes, I could buy that too. I could buy that too, though... Um, though this is the problem with 
um, wizards or the wizard staff as well um, is that I mean if you don't know who he is and if he's not in fact exerting his will in any way it's just an old guy holding a stick and I'm not saying that y yes you can beat people about the head and neck with a stick and I'm not trying to underestimate um how good a weapon a quarterstaff can be. Um, what I'm saying is, um, uh, in order to use his staff as a purely symbolically, like just to assert his authority, like, dude, I'm a wizard. Look, this is my staff. I have a wizard staff. That shows that I'm a wizard, right? So I'm just kind of pulling wizard rank here and showing you my, my, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me to sort of see that other than when Gandalf breaks Saruman's staff, eventually it, it's between the, between the two of them, right? Like they, stabs mean something to them. Definitely. But, um, uh, not, it's hard for me to see that basically, um, playing the same kind of role with, frankly, almost anybody else. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> spoilers. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Jossner. Um Okay. What he says. We'll come back to his actions. Hear his words. Listen, Hound of Sauron, he cried. Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. Okay. So, several things to notice about Gandalf's speech here. First of all, his speech is... Um, first, let's talk about language. Right? Remember, there's one thing that we know about the wargs. The, like, that is the one way in which we know for sure that they're different from normal wolves. In The Hobbit, I'm referring to. Right? I mean, which is what we're kind of building on here, or appealing to here. Um, and that is that they have their own language. They have their own language, which they are speaking amongst each other. Gandalf knows the language because he can understand what the wolves are saying to each other. In The Hobbit, again, I'm speaking of while they're up the pine trees. He overhears them, and he can understand their language. Um, it is not at all obvious to me that he. Uh, we don't know that Gandalf can speak warg, nor do we know whether or not wargs can speak common, right? Um, so. It's possible, of course, I don't want to rule out the idea that Gandalf did, in fact, say this in the warg language to the warg. And that later on, you know, Frodo and Sam were like, hey, Gandalf, what did you say? 
when you stepped out? And he's like, oh, I said, listen, Hound of Sauron, Gandalf is here, right? Um, you know, and Gandalf translates it for them. And so they just, um, they just render it, you know, in, in Westron so that people could understand it the first time. Um, but I agree. I, I don't think that that's possible. Um, uh, Silk Westcott, I think I agree that you'd think the narrator would have pointed out um, that it was in Warg. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, yes, I think so. And as Emily points out, he does um, um, he does mention when the Ro when the Rohirrim speak their own language, for instance. Um, yeah, so. So I, I, I think most likely we are to understand that when Gandalf stands up and strides forward, he speaks to the wolves in the common speech. I do not believe that... I do not believe that Gandalf is just talking. That is to say, I don't think it's... Um, uh, I think he expects to be understood. Um, I also think we know that Gandalf knows the Warg language. I suspect he doesn't use the Warg language. Well, there are a couple reasons. I can think of two reasons why Gandalf would not be using the Warg language here. One is if he wonders if these are not wargs. That would be one reason. Um, no sense speaking in a language they're not going to understand themselves. Um, but the second reason um, is that he wants everybody to understand him. Um, that his audience is not only the wolves. Um, he wants, he is going to defy the wolves, and he wants everyone, hobbits and all, to hear his speech. Ambrosius, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It's as much or more about encouraging uh, the rest of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's almost as if he heard Sam say to Pippin, right, that... Uh, Whatever lies in store for old Gandalf, he wagers it, it, it isn't in a wolf's belly, right? Um, okay. But now back to the content of his speech. First, his addressing of the warg as Hound of Sauron. Now, how do we understand this? Um... How do we understand this? Is that a single? So he's addressing the captain, the warg captain, who stepped up to the ring. One way of reading this would be to understand that that particular warg has this title, Hound of Sauron, right? Like that's the title. Uh, that he that he has, you know, and Gandalf is is identifying him as Hound of Sauron. 
I don't think so. I don't think that's a special title. I don't think he's identifying that one particular warg in in any way. I agree, Emma Thorne. I also think that it is a general descriptor. Um, and the primary reason I think of that is just thinking about hounds, right? Um, if you have a hound, you uh, you probably don't just have one hound, right? Um, you know, hound isn't a isn't a term that seems to me likely to be special in that way. You have a a big pack of hounds, right? You would have a whole kennel of hounds uh, with which you would hunt for things, right? Um, yeah, so to be called a hound of Sauron seems to me most likely to identify this wolf as one of a class, right? Um, that he's identifying them that way, right? I'm not calling you wolves. I'm not calling you wargs. I am noting you for what you are, a hound of Sauron. And I think, Ambrosius, that's just exactly what I was thinking. I think it's an insult, actually. I think it's a diminution of them. Um, they are not, you know, they're not free agents. They're just, uh, they're just hounds. I mean, think also of the way that hounds function in, um, in hunts, right? The hounds are very important in hunts, but, um, but they're just a, they're just a tool, right? They're a tool that's used to, to, to locate and track the prey. Um, and in the end, you, you know, you beat the hounds off of the prey once they find it and catch it, right? Um, you know, you want the you, you want to use the hounds to be able to identify the thing, but usually on a hunt, you want to kill the thing yourself, right? Um, you don't want to just chase it until the hounds kill it, and then uh, and then you go home. You're not just out for a ride, right? Um, anyway, the the point is, hounds are hounds are hounds are instruments. Right? Hounds are not only um, uh, domesticated, servile, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking these things of, from the perspective of wolves, right? Um, uh, the wargs, these highly intelligent wolves with their own spoken language um, who again in The Hobbit were treated as allies of the goblins for them to be compared um, to, to hounds I, I, I think it's a I think it's a diminishment um, you know you are um, you're just you're a tool you're to, you are you are you are a slave who is, you know, menially doing the bidding of your master. Um, yeah, yeah. Juan disagrees. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, 
Huan is an exception, of course, to all things. Um, and of course, apart from general awesomeness, what makes Huan special and a special exception is his choice of where he gives his loyalty, his decision. Um, now, it's still, of course, a decision as to like whom he is going to serve. Um, but um, but he does make his own choices there, right? But yeah, but exactly, Jackie, as you were just saying, it's still it, there was never a question of who on just like I'm going to be a complete free agent, right? Um, he is going to, you know, he he shifts his loyalty uh, when the situation warrants it, right? From Kelligorm to Luthien. Um, yeah, no, Huan wouldn't see being a servant as insulting. That's one of the things that makes him a good guy, right? But the Vargs, I believe, would not really think that being a member of uh, Sauron's pack of hounds would be, uh, would be anything but insulting. Um, yeah, anyway, so I, I, I don't think it's a specific title. I think it's a category. Um, and I suspect it's meant to have at least um, at least a flair uh, of of insult to it. Also, to basically know to show Gandalf to show that he knows what's going on here, right? Um, that he calls these wargs the Hounds of Sauron shows that Gandalf believes that these wargs have been, in fact, sent to hunt for them. Just like the crows, just like the Crevine, were sent to hunt for them as well. This, again, of course, is why, you'll remember, he did not think it was in any way practical to go the long route around by way of Belfalus uh, towards Minas Tirith, um, because there is no way they could go overland that long. Even... Um, uh, I mean, remember, even the the first change, the the, the 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 genocide of crows was the first time that the whole kind of approach to um, their journey seemed to have been altered, right? Um, it, it, it was just, you know, Pippin complaining about not getting extra sleep and not having a hot meal. Um, so it seemed like a sort of a smallish change. But I think it, you know, we were looking at that from that moment, from when the Krabine fly overhead until they get to the mountain, um, they are going swiftly, quietly, and entirely by night. Um, they, um, they know they're being pursued. They were almost found by the Krabine, by the crows. Um, they were probably not spotted by the crows. Um, but there are more than just crows after them. The wolves are after them, too. Um, so he seems clear about the fact um, that Sauron has sent them. One way or another, directly or indirectly, Sauron has set the, the, the wargs hunting. This, I think, is what we can also imply now, I, I think, with a little more confidence. In the previous scene, or you know, right leading up to this, when we were hearing them howling back and forth to each other and communicating as they closed in, right? 
that multiple packs were scouring this looking for them and the pack that came across their trail first summoned all the rest of them right um yeah so i think that it's um that seems to be gandalf's idea um that these hounds are actively hunting for them and that it's sauron who sent them not sauron just is it possible that he means it more generically than that that he just considers any of the these evil twisted wolves um to be generically speaking hounds of sauron whether they're actually under his orders or not i think that's possible you know that you know in like gandalfian slang hound of sauron might just be a way of referring to a warg in general um but i don't think so i think i think that he believes they have been sent after them and we had reason to believe that that's true um also that gandalf should be unsurprised right remember he believes that he revealed himself on the mountainside he is not surprised to find them being hunted right away um them being pursued somebody he felt was going to come chasing after them um yes the hunt is up murina absolutely um we're not being hunted anymore now we're being chased right as we talked about before um so yes he always knew that they were being hunted um and again i think this this confirms it so my guess therefore by the way <clears throat> is that the Krabine are probably from saruman and the wolves are probably from sauron at least gandalf seems to seems to think so um the fact that they have been sent over, that they've come over the mountains through whichever of the mountain passes, presumably not this one, or at least not very recently. Um, but, uh, um, but they've come to the west of the mountains in order to hunt for them. Um, shows that they're, you know, sort of closer, uh, closer on the trail. Okay, so... But he doesn't just say Hound of Sauron. He says, listen, Hound of Sauron. Right? He, uh, he, he addresses the warg with a little imperative. Um, he's not just talking. And he's not just talking to impress or encourage his companions. He, um, he wants this warg, this, uh, you know, this hound dog of Sauron to um, pay attention. And his message is Gandalf is here. Now, of course, this is pretty funny because remember, that's what he said that he had written in letters that could be read from the mouths of the Anduin, to, right? I mean, Gan I've written Gandalf is here, is what he said, right? Um, when he was grumbling about how he had uh, ruined their secrecy. Um, so he repeats those exact same words. Gandalf is here. Um, and I just, I love that echo. First, it's a regret. There's fear and frustration in it, right? 
I have said Gandalf is here. You know, I've written Gandalf is here in words that can in letters that can be read. Um, it's um, uh, you know, he, he he's blown it. He's he's destroyed their secrecy. He does it with reluctance and with some regret. And there's frustration in the like I have said, I have written Gandalf is here, right? Um, now he openly declares Gandalf is here to the Hound of Sauron. Listen, Hound of Sauron, Gandalf is here. Um, because although secrecy had been really, really important, he did not want to be discovered. Now that they are discovered, well, these wolves are going to find out that Gandalf is here, right? Not, um, not some helpless prey creature, right? Do you realize, Hound of Sauron, that you have been sent to hunt Gandalf? I just want to make sure to specify, I want to clarify, I want to make sure to inform you about exactly what you've been what you've been sent to do, right? Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. Um, I will shrivel you from tail to snout. So I, a couple people talking about um, Gandalf speaking in the third person. He kind of speaks in the third person. That is, he, um, he does for one sentence. He uses his own name. Um, but he's not just speaking in the third person generally. He shifts to the, to the first person right away. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring, right? Um, and I actually think that that is much more, uh, much more intimidating than just speaking in the third person all the way through. He speaks in the third person so as to name his own name, right? Um, Gandalf is here. You will have heard of me. Right. Um, and I, I saw that uh, several of you joking about, um, you know, uh, I am Gandalf and Gandalf means me. Right. His identification of himself to Bilbo in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, yes, that is playful and kind of comical. This is the less funny version, but it's him doing the same thing. Right. He is naming himself. He is identifying himself. Gandalf is, Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. So first a statement. Gandalf is here. Well, first an imperative. Listen. Then the statement. Gandalf is here. Then another imperative. Right? Another command. Fly. Uh, with a condition attached to it, right? If you value your foul skin. Should you value your foul skin, you ought to fly. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring, right? Future indicative, I will, this is what's going to happen. I am going to shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. Notice that, um, I mean... The scene with Gandalf and the wolves in The Hobbit has been lurking behind this stuff from the beginning. Um, from the beginning of this whole sequence. Um, it's clear that we're supposed to remember that. And of course, Gandalf does 
cow he successfully cows the the wolves the wargs in the hobbit by throwing fire at them right by chucking burning pine cones at them um and one of the things you know considered one of the great insults that uh, needs to be avenged at the battle of five armies uh was the burning of the uh the 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 warg king's nose right the, the leader of the wargs gets his nose burned um by a, a flaming pine cone uh from uh from from gandalf there um but now forget you know i'm i might singe you uh, by hucking a flaming pine cone at you. Um, I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. Right? I'm going to just flat incinerate you, threatening them with fire, but on a far different scale. Um, I don't think... I don't think there's any way more clearly to emphasize how the character of Gandalf and the stature of wizards has grown between the Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring more than comparing this paragraph to that scene in The Hobbit with Gandalf hiding up a pine tree, setting pine cones alight and chucking them at the wolves. Um, he is very different uh, than he than he was before. Um, he, and again, this was anticipated by Sam, right? Wagering that there was something other than a wolf's belly in store for Gandalf. That is Sam's frank disbelief that a wolf is going to be capable of killing Gandalf. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Of course, notice, by the way, the just brief notice of the use of the word fly here. Um, Gandalf, or not Gandalf does use it, but Tolkien always uses that word. The word fly is Gandalf, is Tolkien's word for run away very fast. Always. Um, that is his absolute go-to word. Um for um, fleeing, right, for running away. Just side note, um, as we see Gandalf use it here, and we will see Gandalf use it again. Um, this is, and yes, uh, you are um, anticipating me, of course. This is one of the reasons why, like, again, you can't, you can only oppose this kind of argument with, um, you know, looking at the overall word patterns, the word usage patterns and stuff. But yes, the people who argue that Balrogs have wings because of that passage that said they flew from Thangorodrum. Um, it's, it's uh, again, in context, looking at the overall word usage, it is perfectly clear that they flew from Thangorodrum in the same way that Gandalf is uh, suggesting that uh, the Hound of Sauron might profit from their example and um, uh, take to flight um, and run away really fast here. Um, 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about the alliteration here for a second, Rothgar. Listen, Hound of Sauron. Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. He doesn't use a whole lot of alliteration there. Gandalf doesn't. Fly and foul. Yes, we got the two Fs. We have some S's, but um, uh, the um, yeah, the S yeah, right value. Yeah, no, no, I mean not exactly. Um, It is true that foul and snout are uh, are uh, some some nice assonance there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a his speech has a good cadence, as almost all of Tolkien's speeches do. Um, it's not exactly poetic. Mostly because the sentences are too short. The the gaps, because you really do need to leave gaps between the sentences. Listen, Hound of Sauron. Gandalf is here. Fly if you value your foul skin. I will shrivel you from tail to snout if you come within this ring. Um, that last sentence has the longest sustained rhythm, but I don't really see it being balanced by the other three sentences. Again, mostly because they're um, yeah. Gildalowin, you're right. In addition to Fowl and Snout, we have Hound and Sauron. Yeah. Um, you're right. That, um, uh, that is a, uh, the, the, that is a little, uh, vowel motif, or, you know, diphthong motif here, right? Hound of Sauron, foul skin, tail to snout. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. That's true. I do like that. How Hound of Sauron rhymes <clears throat> or assonates. Is that the verb? We're going to call it so. Um, and then we pick up on that on that um, uh, assy thingy. Yes, as Eustace Clarence Scrub would say. Um, uh, twice more. Um, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. At that moment there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosed his bow. There was a hideous yell, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced its throat. So the wolf responds to Gandalf's threat um, with snarling violence. He doesn't howl. He doesn't speak. Well, maybe the snarling is a speech. We don't speak, Warg. Um, perhaps he was returning some uh, horrible insult himself. Um, yeah. 
The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. At that moment there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosed his bow. There was a hideous yowl, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced its throat. The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward, but the hill was deserted. The hunting packs had fled. All about them the darkness grew silent, and no cry came on the sighing wind. That is interesting. So, I think that there's less alliteration being used here than there was in the more descriptive, like the more landscape description passages earlier on. We get some. Um, Legolas loosed his bow. The um, sprang and twang. You know, we get the, those those rhymes there in consecutive sentences. Um, snarled and sprang a little bit. Um, all right, Legolas loosed and leaping um, in the next um, in the next sentence. But I didn't. I was. I read it aloud again just then because I was listening for sound patterns of that kind. Um, and I just, um, I just did not hear it the same way that I was hearing them when we were looking at the landscape descriptions before. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, the, Okay, oh, we do get leap beforehand, too. Now, still, even with those four L's. Um, no. Um, it leaps forward to attack. And then Legolas shoots it. Notice... What I'm looking at is the pattern of the sort of syntax again. We don't see... We don't see things happening. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them. That's a statement of direct action, right? Then at that moment there was a twang. So then a sound is heard. We find out after the fact that Legolas had loosed his bow. There was a hideous yell. Then a yell happened. Right? Another sound occurs. And the leaping shape thudded to the ground. The leaping shape. The wolf, presumably. Right? The leaping shape thudded to the ground. The elvish arrow had pierced its throat. I'm just... I'm mindful of... The way we were looking at how Tolkien was using the passive voice and the, the kind of the indirection of his descriptions in the previous paragraph. And this is all very indirect as well, right? The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Then once again, we get a direct statement of action. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward. Anyway, what I'm saying is, there, you, 
there were way more direct ways he could have said these things, right? The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. At that moment, Legolas shot it in the throat. It yelled, you know, the wolf yelled hideously and fell to the ground. The watching eyes went out. The watching eyes vanished. Gandalf and Aragorn strode forward. Like, you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to kind of translate. Um, I was about to say translate into the active, the active voice, but it's not really about active versus passive. It's about what Tolkien chooses to describe. At that moment, there was a sharp twang. There was a hideous yell. The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. See how that, again, it's all very indirect. The last one, the watching eyes were suddenly extinguished, is passive voice. Right. That's the one statement in there that is, in fact, passive voice. Um, but yes, Bjarnason, I think you're right. Um, Vardendil, yes, exactly that. The, the narrator is giving a sensory impression. Yes, exactly. And that's a similar kind of pattern to what we were noticing when he was using the passive voice in that previous description paragraph of the ward captain coming into the gap, right? Um, we don't... We're not just told who does what. We're just given the impression of what, of like, what happens as you perceive it. The wolf snarls and springs towards them. So here's wolf in flight, right? Leaping through the air. They hear a sound. They only figure out a second later, and I do think it's generally from the Hobbit's point of view, right? They only figure out a second after they hear the sound what it was. They heard a twanging sound. What makes, oh, Legolas just loosed his bow. That's what made that twanging sound. The next thing they notice is a hideous yell. They don't even see the arrow or know what it does, right? Um, to say Legolas shoots the warg in the throat is to be a little bit more on top of events than this description puts us in, right? They hear the twang. Oh, wait, Legolas must have shot him. Oh, and then he yells. And then he hits the ground. Oh, look, arrow in his throat. Yeah. I get like it's like the description is a a little slow on the uptake, a little slow to follow the action, right? Um and then the watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. What just happened there? Did somebody do that? Right? Did that did that is is there what's the cause and effect here? Right? Did the killing of the captain make their eyes go out? You know, all, all we know is they're suddenly extinguished. And I think extinguished is an important word here. Right? Gandalf was just threatening fire. Their eyes are described like fire. Um, that is extinguished. That's a fire word, right? Um, so their eyes are like fires, fires that have suddenly gone out. That's the experience of what, you know, describing what they see. The watching eyes were suddenly extinguished, it's like all those little fires just went out. They've all been snuffed out at the same time that this leaping shape thudded to the ground. It, I mean, have the wolves all vanished or been killed? No. 
they're still there, and we know they're still there. Um, they're gonna attack later. Um, but, um, but for now, what they see, the hobbits, I think, presumably, what the hobbits see is that the eyes just go out. Um, they then see Gandalf and Aragorn striding forward. They know who they are and what they're doing. But the hill was deserted. The hunting packs had fled. That's a conclusion, right? That is, we draw the conclusion based on A, seeing the eyes suddenly extinguished, and B, Gandalf and Aragorn, you know, advancing forward and not finding any wolves, that the hunting packs had fled. Pla packs, plural, we see, right? Packs, plural, confirmed. All about them, the darkness grew silent, and no cry came on the sighing wind. Grew silent. The darkness hadn't been silent before. There were the howls, of course, that they were hearing previously. But even without the howls, there were probably noises, right? But it grew... It grew silent. Um, yeah, Bjorning, it has that look, doesn't it? I, I don't I don't think, and I don't think that you're suggesting that this is, in fact, the situation. Um, but, yes, uh, Bjorning was saying it's like wolves were animated by the captain, who may have been more than a wolf, like when the orc armies of Mordor lose animus after the ring is destroyed. Yeah, um, that seems to me the implication, or at least potential implication, of their eyes were suddenly extinguished. Like fires, not that have gone out, right? Not that have been covered up, that have been put out, right? Um, that's what extinguished means, right? So it is as if all of those wolves that were surrounding them were somehow connected to this one who, as soon as it was killed, they just, poof, they're just gone, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and to Juice Man, you're right. Darkness is the subject of that last sentence. All about them, the darkness grew silent. But that also, although it's not the darkness grew, that's active voice, right? So, again, syntactically, it's not passive. But once again, it's indirect. It's passive-esque. Right? Again, it's not a passive verb construction. But when the darkness grows silent, um, that's a very interesting thing. That's a very interesting way to say the noise died down. Right? The noises that they could hear grew dimmer and stopped until nothing but silence remained. Right? That's, I believe, what is being conveyed, the idea that's being conveyed in that last sentence. Um, but it's quite different to say, the darkness grew silent. Silence is now an attribute of the darkness. It's an attribute that grows, that comes into being. Um, and no cry came on the sighing wind. And Houth, you're right. I mean, it's... it's um, The fact that you can hear the wind sighing tells you it's, it's not completely silent, right? Um, yeah. 
Um, yes, exactly, Josh. That is the effect. That that kind of inversion um, does make the, the growing silent. He says makes it seem like the silence is a thing in itself, not merely the absence of sound. Exactly, exactly. Um, the darkness grew silent. Um, most of the focus of this last paragraph is almost all of it is on sensory perception. Most of that is on sound. Um, the hobbits clearly do not understand what's going on here. They're not following the action. That, I think, is conveyed brilliantly in the way that, again, you could say very easily, very quickly, right? If this were somebody describing a Dungeons & Dragons encounter, they would certainly say, um, at that moment, you know, uh, Legolas shot the wolf in the throat with his arrow, right? Um, but they don't even know, they don't, they, they don't even follow that. Instead, we get this collection of disconnected. Notice how how, how short um, things are there, right? Again, notice that in structure. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. That they can see, right? Um, at that moment, there was a sharp twang. Short sentence, done. That's the whole sentence, right? At the same time that he leaps, they hear a sound. What's the sound? Who knows? Um, Legolas had loosed his bow. Another short sentence. Okay, right. Legolas loosed his bow. Right. So I'm getting this like fragmentary. Um, again, they're not sentence fragments, but these 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 short little chunks of observation. Um, there was a hideous yell, and the leaping shape thudded to the ground. They they hear that and see that at the same time. Then we get the semicolon. The elvish arrow had pierced its throat. That gets like, it's a semicolon because that gets attached to the same thing. Just that they hear the yell and they see it thud to the ground and they notice as soon as it does that Legolas's arrow, the elvish arrow, had pierced its throat. They can see what happened. But again, it's not even until then that they've, they've now finally put the whole picture together. It took them one, two, three, four, four sentences, the second of which has two parts in it, right? Um, to piece together this one simple action. Um, then the watching eyes were suddenly extinguished. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Kate. The passive voice with suddenly extinguished is really interesting. It makes it sound as if something had done it to them. Maybe it's the killing of the captain that did it to them. Right, who knows? Um, Murina Fay, I do suspect Boromir is behind them. <laughs> the hobbits, that is. They're watching Gandalf. He's been commanding attention, right? Aragorn is next to him. Um, but if, um, if Gandalf and Aragorn 
Boromir and Gimli are the only four who are armed for melee combat, and the hobbits are more or less useless at this juncture, and Legolas is doing ranged combat. It's just the four of them to cover the whole circle at the top of the hill. The hobbit's focus is on Gandalf and Aragorn, who seem to be on the same side, right? Um, I would guess that Gimli and Boromir are uh, guarding the the part of the hobbits, the part of the hill that the hobbits are not looking at, um, uh, are not looking at here. Um, yeah, there's um, not really much. You know, Kurtzimus, um great meeting you, by the way. Cascade minute, Kurtzimus. Um I, I was, I'm actually surprised Boromir doesn't blow his horn here. Um, goodness knows the hunt is up, right? I mean, there's no reason to worry about giving away their position here. Um, with the howling packs all gathering around and yelling in warg language, right, that they're here. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I've, I've always been surprised that he doesn't, he doesn't blow his horn here. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, Leaf of Starlight, I agree. I, I would think, um, that, um, it does seem like a situation that could call for the aggressive, defiant move of a horn blowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, maybe he took Elrond's warning seriously? Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, yeah, thanks for quoting it, JJ. Slow should you be to wind that horn again, Boromir, until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, right, Dizzy suggesting he's holding his sword and shield and can't blow his horn at the same time. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't explain. Uh, all we know, there's no evidence that he does blow it. And we're not told what he does because the hobbits don't seem to be looking at him. Um, yeah. Well, see, Bjorn Sonner, I agree on the one hand that only other creatures that speak warg are going to totally understand what this whole hullabaloo is about this evening, right, uh, on this particular hill crowned with boulder stones. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I, I, and you know, so is there something hunting them that, you know, is ignoring the wargs or not understanding the wargs and, um, you know, but would recognize the horn um, and come after them then? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Um, maybe. Yeah, Hrothgar says his headcanon is that... Um, um, Boromir was totally just getting ready to. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, uh, 
that's an interesting point. Sorry, I'm thinking, Marina Fay, about your point. Um, Marina says, I suppose if you don't have reinforcements to come help, why blow the horn? Everyone's already here. Yes. Now, it wasn't to summon reinforcements that he blew the horn in Rivendell. But, but it's still a worthwhile point, because although there are other reasons to blow a horn other than calling for reinforcements, at the end of the day, the horn is about communication, right? Um, he blew the horn in Rivendell because it was his custom to blow the horn upon departure. And that's a communication thing, right? Um, I, uh, it is a, both a combination of an encouragement to his people, right? Um, I am announcing to the people of Minas Tirith that I am riding, we, the you know, army of Gondor is riding forth to battle um, without fear. And it's also a kind of warning shot to the enemy. Like um, like a knight in Sir Thomas Mallory shouting out ahead for the other dude to defend himself, right? Um, yeah, Bjorning, he's saying Boromir is here. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So it is about communication. Uh, Maybe he doesn't think communicating with wolves, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe he doesn't think the wolves are sort of worthy adversary in this way, right? You don't need to, you don't need to like um, send defiance to wolves before you fight them, like you should to your enemy. Right. Like you tell your enemy you're about to attack. That's. I know you don't usually actually do that. Right. But um, uh, that, I believe, would be Boromir's school of school of battle. Um, yeah. Several of you are looking ahead to there will, in fact, be another time prior to him being beset by foes on the borders of his land that he is going to ring his ring his bell. No, that he's going to sound his horn. But um uh but yeah, we're we're not going to talk about that yet. Um Yep. Yep. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um No, I still on balance. I think if I were there, I would advise Boromir to blow the horn. I'm just saying it's this seems like a perfectly fine horn blowing situation to me, but he doesn't do it. So, you know, and it's hard to draw too much in the way of conclusions from just totally negative evidence. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, as Emily says, as for summoning, summoning allies, you don't actually have to have allies uh, to summon them. Um, and as Josh pointed out, it worked for Turin, right? Yeah, that's exactly Turin's approach. 
uh, when he first um, rescues the uh, the men of Brithil. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. And as I said, I can't. I don't know that I can fully explain it. Just admit that it's interesting that he doesn't do it. Okay. I want to come back to a point that I made near the beginning, and that is that this is the first battle of the book. This is the first melee combat of the book. Well, no melee combat technically happened here. Um, <laughs> it didn't get past the ranged combat, right? Um, and I don't just mean this one incident with the wolf, but the battle that it, this, this, this whole night, right? This whole night is going to be, is basically, it's our Hobbit narrator's, narrator's first experience of battle. And I think that Tolkien conveys how strange and hard to follow it all was. I mean, this is over in a heartbeat, literally in a heartbeat. Um, it's not going to take the wolf long at all to leap forward and cross the distance to close with Gandalf. Um, and yet it's dead. You know, it, 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 it leaps and is dead before it hits the ground. And then immediately everybody else vanishes. So this is an enormously quick exchange. Happens in no more than a couple seconds at most. And we get this experience of them processing what happened much, much more slowly than it happened. Um, they can barely even follow it. And I don't think when the next part happens, they're going to contribute very much. Um, this is important just to keep in mind, because when we get the fight with the, with the orcs in the Chamber of Mazarbul, the hobbits will take part in that battle. And that will be the first time that they will actually participate in a battle. This is their first sight of it, their first experience of it. Um, and they're barely, they're spectators, and they're spectator, spectators who barely even understand what, uh, what happens with it. Well, Johannes, okay, you're right. I did not count the melee combat between Frodo and Sancho Proudfoot uh, at the end of chapter one. Uh, uh, that's true. But see, uh, that's, a, that's a wrestling match <laughs> more than a battle, precisely. Um, uh, but it does show that Frodo has uh, knows some wrestling tricks, right? Which Pippin might also, perhaps. Um, you know, I'm thinking, of course, of the ones he's going to be threatening Burgil with um, uh, later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, it, he's called young Sancho Proudfoot Curtimus, but I suspect, um, uh, I suspect Frodo would have been called young too. Um, let's see. Where? How old is Sancho? One of the most fun things about looking at um, looking Sancho Proudfoot up in the uh, oh yeah, he is younger. 
Let's see. Yeah, Frodo is... Oh, yeah. Frodo was born in 1368. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay, Frodo doesn't need that many, uh, uh, that many wrestling moves. Frodo is fully 22 years older. Sancho's 11. Yeah. Yeah, I never did the math there. Yeah. Sancho's 11. When, uh, Frodo has to wrestle him out of the room. So, yeah. Um, doesn't require sophisticated wrestling maneuvers. But, um, 11-year-olds can be wily. Yeah, no, I know it. I know it. Um, but, um, yeah. But I don't know that he necessarily threw him out with one hand. Again, 11-year-olds can be a handful. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to, uh, um, you know, downplay it. But, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, I think if, um, you know, a 33-year-old adult can't take an 11-year-old straight up in a tussle, um, there's probably, there's probably something wrong. Um, but in any case, yes, um, uh, Fighting against evil beasts that want to kill you is a very different experience. Bjorn Asanar, I, I agree. Yes, so tussling with the 11-year-old probably doesn't count. Probably not on quite the same scale. Um, doesn't really count as combat experience. <laughs> I can't even say that sentence without laughing. Um, yes, yes. Uh, doesn't really count as combat experience. Um, so, um, yeah. Yes, he overcomes Sancho and pushed him out. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, well, eleven-year-olds take a lot of pushing. Um, yeah, it really, it really does, it, and it certainly does depend on the eleven-year-old. Uh, Matt, you're completely right about that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I've tussled with a bunch of eleven-year-olds actually, and I can tell you there are some eleven-year-olds that can really put up a fight. Um, uh, yeah, I um, uh, in my karate training, the teens uh, and preteens train with the adults often. Um, so yeah, there I've known some feisty eleven-year-olds, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if I had to get them out of my pantry, I could probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. Sorry, sorry. Um, I. I do think. Remember that Tolkien was a soldier. That Tolkien went to war. Um, and I do think that we can see, just in the whole way, in the, the way that he shapes his syntax. Um, some people were talking about how it is true that in a moment of climactic action, Tolkien often uses short sentences or short clauses, independent clauses, often strung together with conjunctions. Um, what is called technically paratactic syntax. Um, that is a trend of his. And the effect of that is to retain 
the forward momentum of the prose. Um, subordinate clauses slow you down, right? Um, subordinate clauses cause you to pause and contemplate the logical relationship between, um, you know, the one thing that happened and the subordinate clause that happened. How does it qualify the main clause and all that kind of thing? I mean, it takes you've got to you've got to work it out on some level. Um, whereas paratactic syntax, which is just short independent clauses, again usually strung together by conjunctions, is just and a thing happened, and another thing happened, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing, um, which keeps you rolling through. Um, I don't see, um, I don't, I, I don't think that that's what's happening here. Um, the reason that I don't think that that's true is. Notice that look at those first three sentences, which would seem to fit something like that pattern. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. At that moment, there was a sharp twang. Legolas had loosed his bow. Um, that is not three short sentences designed to maintain the forward momentum of idea. Um, the first sentence sounds like that. Sounds like it's starting that kind of sequence. The wolf snarled and sprang towards them with a great leap. Um, then you get another thing with the little tag at the front at that moment, which is not usual for parataxis. Um, and then you, at that moment, there was a sharp twang. It's like, so this thing happens, and then something else happened. Uh, what was that? Legolas had loosed his bow. We're looking backwards, right? That's not a description of what happens next. That's a description of what happened before, right? We're figuring that out. And you can tell that in the tense, right? Um, he, he shifts to the past perfect, had loosed. That was a thing that happened. It was an action that was completed in the past. Legolas had loosed his bow. Oh, that's what that meant, right? So again, it's, Action thing is happening. Something else occurs. What was that? Oh, yeah, that's the thing that happened. Legolas had loosed his bow, right? So, again, it doesn't have that kind of forward momentum. Um, uh, Theoden's Charge is the classic example. Um, uh, if you read Theoden's Charge, you can see Tolkien really doing the, you know, that like Tolkienian action sequence parataxis is really, it's a classic. Um, a classic example of it, right? Um, there is a forward momentum of understanding. Well, I would, but I wouldn't call it momentum, Bjarne Sonder. There's, they're, 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 they're figuring things out, but they're, it's very fragmented. This is not continuous action or continuous events, event after event after event, action after action after action. One thing happens really fast. And they get it in bits and have to parse together what happened, right? Again, instead of conveying the momentum of a charge, right, what we get is the wild and slightly disconnected impressions and conclusions of someone who is seeing combat for the first time and doesn't even know how to parse it. Don't 
know what to listen to, don't know how, don't even know what sounds mean. Like there was a sharp twang. We have a dude with a bow, right? They don't even process, it doesn't automatically process. Like it, we, at that moment, you know, a bow twanged. A more experienced soldier might have thought, right? But they don't even connect the sound with the concept bow right away, right? Those two things happen disconnectedly because they don't know what's going on here. Um, uh, yeah, that's interesting, Dan. Um, the shift in the tense means that the description of the events is reactive. Yes, it creates a feeling of events occurring outside the control of the hobbits um, and us, the readers. Yes, outside of their control and again, even outside of their ability to really parse it in real time. Um, yes, yes. Um, so I do think that Tolkien, it, it is a similar tactic, um, to what Tolkien, to ha what Tolkien does in, um, other action moments like that. But I don't believe that that's actually what he's, um, that it's actually, I think he's using it to a very different effect here. And that's really fun. I'd never really noticed that before. How dis, um, disconnected, how much of that sort of confusion and disjunction there is here. If this were described, if this scene were described from Gandalf's point of view, it would sound much different, right? Or Aragorn's point of view, or Legolas's point of view, right? Really anybody who's on top of what's happening, right? And who has experience with this sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yep. Um, oh, that's interesting. Abelard, you're right. Later on, we will get descriptions like the bow of Lorien sang. Right. Um, yes, we're parsing it differently now. Yep. Um, that's a really interesting contrast, JJ. JJ is contrasting it ahead to the death of Wormtongue. Um, yeah, I'll read that. That's a that's a good point of contrast. But at that, something snapped. Suddenly, Wormtongue rose up, drawing a hidden knife, and then with a snarl like a dog, he sprang on Saruman's back, jerked back his head, cut his throat, and with a yell ran off down the lane. Before Frodo could recover or speak a word, three hobbit bows twanged and Wormtongue fell dead. Yes, um... You notice how much that's a sudden action. We're told it takes Frodo by surprise, right? Everyone is shocked uh, and 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 startled um, at the sudden sequence of actions. But notice the sequence of actions and even the difference between three hobbit bows twanged and Wormtongue fell dead. Um, the narrator of that scene, you know, is describing surprising action, but is not conveying a sense of this sort of chaos, right? This sort of uncontrolled, um, unidentified uh, kind of uh, kind of chaos. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, we're gonna stop here. More battle next time, um, and I should be here next week. Uh, so we'll be. Um, um, uh, shouldn't be any problem with um, uh, uh, 
with meeting next week. So we'll go on and do more wolf battle next time. Um, in the meantime, it's field trip time this evening. So thanks to everybody who joined us for the book discussion. And we're going to do our field trip. Unfortunately, Valori couldn't be here with us tonight. She is ill today. Um, got bronchitis and can't breathe. It's uh, She's had a bad run of um, illness lately where she's several times recently been either in a can't breathe or can't speak. Been either bronchitis or laryngitis of late. Um, and uh, either one of those is hard to talk through. But um, anyhow, we will persevere. I don't know if um, Druid's Fire is going to be able to join us here this evening. But if not, I'll have to just solo my field trip. Okay. So let's go. We'll start. Um, so our we have a quest today. And our quest today is to find a new um, a new milestone. So we're going to find a new milestone. Um, let's see. Okay. Oops. Sorry. Hit the wrong button here. Um, I'm going to go down to Stonecrop Encampment. Um, yeah. Good. Oops. Almost did the wrong one. I almost used my milestone out to the prancing pony outside, which would not be very helpful. All right. So we more or less finished our examinations of Tharbad last time. So we are now going to cross the river again, and this time continue on down into Swanfleet, because I believe we have now finished our explorations of Cardolan, which is fun. Um, all right. So let's go across to the south gate of Tharbad and head down into Swanfleet. And let's see what we see. One of my questions that I have for Swanfleet south of Tharbad is what, if any, ruins we will see there? We have already discovered what seems fairly clear evidence um, based on uh, the flagstones, which we'll see again in a moment, um, what seems to be fairly clear evidence that there, uh, that the that Tharbad represented the frontier between the Gondorian and the Arnorian sides of the Greenway. Right? We know that the Greenway stretches from Minas Tirith to Fornost, um, 
and um, I yeah I, so I, I think it's as I say I think it's pretty clear um, that based on the flagstones that the way that it is depicted in the game Gondor has jurisdiction of the road south of here so my question basically will be what are we going to see there? Um, will there be many Gondorian... Hang on a second. Where am I going? I forgot that this road doesn't really lead anywhere. Where's the gate? Can't get through. Sorry, I thought we'd get through over here. I don't think we get through over here. we got to go around? Right up this way? Aha! This looks more like it. There we go. There it is. Okay, here we are. Oh, thanks very much for that. Thanks for forming up the raid there. Alright, so this. Here it is. The beginning of the Gondorian flagstones that made up the road tree and well sun not really a star um hmm though it is seven pointed I guess it's still a star seven raid star I suppose. Okay. All right. So now that we are down, oh, I'm not quite on the Swanfleet map in the game. As we're coming down into Swanfleet, we're now we've passed out. We're we've been spending all of our time in Cardolan thinking about which era of Cardolan, um, you know, is uh, and we've we have identified potentially four different layers, right of building and of culture in Cardolan. Five, arguably. Some from ancient, ancient days before the Adain ever came here. Then the Numenorians, Then Old Arnor. Then Cardolan um, after the Civil Wars began. And then the modern um, buildings since the fall of Cardolan. What do we find? What are we going to find over here? Um... Is there going to be much of anything from a, a Gondorian perspective? This would have been like the last frontier of empty lands before they got to the border of Arnor. Um, and it comes after Enidwife, in which there was also a great deal of very little, right? Um, and then Dunland again, through which there wasn't much um, until we got down to the Gap of Rohan and Nankurinir. Um, but what will we see? Okay, so today I want to go straight to Mossward, which is the first, like, well, first town we see on the map. And I want to uh, see what we see along the way and see if we can find another um, 
milestone down there at Mossward that we can tag to begin our explorations around here next time. Okay, so my mini-map says our turnoff is here, and it's a good thing, because I might not have noticed it. But you can see it's a fairly well-worn path. Even some evidence of flagstones. Do you think these are decorated or that's just veins in the rock? Probably just veins in the rock, right? Probably just veins in the rock. Okay. So this is a beaten trail through rocky ground. All those boulders sticking up. And the village that we come to here in Mossward is a village like Herna in the Bree style. Ah, with a wooden palisade around it. We have discovered Mossward. Okay. Right, this is where you start off if you... Um, this is where you start off if you uh, start a character down here. Hello there. Okay, we've got our stable master here. That's helpful. Alright. Yeah, we can probably dismount here. Um, we're going to be roaming around town. We've got stone walls. Okay, so one thing I'm looking for is any evidence of ruins in or around this little town. Huh. Look how old the stone looks on this fountain. It looks That stone looks very like the stone we've seen in some of the ruins round about, but that, it's not really enough to go on. This town is clearly old, like Herne. Huh, look at that. Tower on the hill. But that looks like a tower under construction. Huh, I'll have to take a look at that. That is interesting. Okay, but yeah, I'm seeing these stone walls seem to match the stone foundations here. Uh get a separate map, right? Yes, we do. I love separate town maps. Um, okay. Well, some stone houses. But I am not at all convinced that those stone houses predate the other ones. Same basic architectural style. Yeah, this guard tower is new. The guard tower and the palisade look definitely look newish to me. We're gonna use the you know, this outcropping of stone defensively, but we're still gonna build a palisade because there are irregularities and it's easy to climb over in places. Uh, but we need a tower to be able to see over 
So this suggests not just we're going to build a wall to keep animals out or whatever, but we expect we might be attacked, so we need a watchtower as well. So that tells us something about the current conditions, which do seem... Um, had they built a wall in ancient days, had it, had it been there for, you know, a thousand years, it would have been built out of... I would think stone like this, right? Like this stone wall, which is very neatly laid. Okay, see, these are just boundaries with loose stones. Yep, I'm not yet seeing any evidence that this town has been here for more than a few hundred years. I mean, maybe it has. But, ah, there we are. And there is our first bona fide ruin. Okay, it's outside the town, though. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and there's an... Oh, is that another one, or is it the same one I was looking at? It might be the same one I was looking at. Tower under construction. What is that? Well, we'll have to see. Certainly could very well be new. Likely to be new. Alright. We'll look at that next time. Is there... Yes, I have done the opening sequence of this uh, in this village, so I know what these orcs here are about. There's our ranger friend, Meneldeer. But yeah, I don't think... Uh, not seeing anything else near the Palisade. Also not seeing a milestone. Is there a milestone in here? Maybe there's no milestone. That would be awkward. Kind of hoping for that so I could come back. I mean, I could theoretically stable master here from. Somewhere. Oh, hang on. Over here. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. There's the milestone. Thank you for identifying that for me. Missed it. Okay, here we go. You're now officially bound to Mossward in Swanfleet. Okay. All right. So I think we've seen all around the town, apart from this fountain, which is curious. My guess, I'm going to guess, that this fountain was made with reclaimed stone from a ruin, like from Tharpod. I'm not sure why, as there seems to be abundant stone in the ground around here, as we can see in the path, um, not to mention the boulders all around the path. And these kinds of stone walls 
the walls around the gardens, the uh, these little paths, you know, these little borders of loose rocks here, are they suggest that um, the ground is full of rocks, so that when you try to farm or dig, or um, you know, you try to dig a foundation or plant a garden, you're gonna have to dig up massive quantities of rocks and put them somewhere. Um, but they decided not to mess with those. They wanted, I guess, nice old circular. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's their stone cutting. That they were like, we would like a nice circular stone fountain. But we don't have a good stonemason who could cut a nice circular um, fountain ourselves. But I bet you they could find a fountain like this in Tharbad and transplant it over. That's what I'm guessing. This was some kind of civic project. Though they did make it work, the fountain. Got the plumbing to work. They must have had a plumber, but not a stonemason. Okay. All right. Well, from here, next time, we will start spreading out a little more widely. I want to I wanna look at some of this uh, wild country here around Mossward and see if there's anything that we find around here. If not, we can continue, um, I think, up. We might as well go uh, like uh, counterclockwise here around, explore these other towns, and then head up through these areas and the Wade Water and all that, looking up towards Eregion and the Angle. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll work around this way, and then we'll go back to Eregion. And, oh... Hey, they updated the map. I like it. Never did like the Eregion map. Okay. So yeah, we'll come back up from Swanfleet. Yeah, we'll cross over from here. The part of the land we couldn't cross before. Yes, sir. And then we'll come back and uh, we'll find, I think this is where the wolf battle happens. And then we'll climb up in the Redhorn Pass. That's just what we'll do. All right. Well, thanks for as we took our first leg of exploration here into um, uh, what's it called, Swanfleet. I forgot the name of the region. Uh, here into Swanfleet, we'll continue exploring around here before we head back into Eregion. So, um, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. And I will see you guys again next week. Bye now.